As you may have seen as we read through this portion, we have here in, in, in a, a part of this passage a testimony of the Apostle Paul. And he uses it to make several points. You know, and it's, it, for us, that's an example of one of the tools we can use in our witnessing and desire to share the good news with the lost. Because we've been commissioned, haven't we? To not only celebrate Christ as we do with our Lord's table and as we're going to do this time of year, and we do every day, we rejoice in the Lord always, but we're to, we're, to, we're to share Him. We are to bring the love of Christ and the death, His death on the cross to the world around us. And, and one of the good, great ways to do that is simply by giving a testimony of what, what God has taught you, what God has promised to you in your salvation and how you came to faith in Christ in, in order that others might see the simplicity of salvation. That salvation is not by works, lest any man should boast, but instead through faith in Christ alone. And that's what we find here in this passage. And as he introduces this passage, he tells us to rejoice in the Lord, because that's the central focus of this passage. This is a gospel passage, isn't it? It talks about his salvation. And so it, it brings our focus immediately in the first verse to the, to the brethren, to the believers in Philippi, to rejoice in the Lord. That's the focus. That's our focus. Jesus should ever be the center of our lives, the focus of our lives, the reason we get up every day, because he's our creator, he's our savior, he's the one that would walk with us to help us navigate through the pitfalls of this life, and he delivers us from this present evil world, and all that we need is found in Jesus, thus we rejoice in him. And then Paul says he's going to give the gospel, you might say, it doesn't really say that here, but he says he's going to repeat something they've heard before. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. He's going to repeat a message they'd heard many times. This message of salvation contained here in his testimony, but he says it, that's not tedious. And the gospel never ought to be tedious. But you'll hear preacher after preacher say that when they're giving a message, and maybe during their message they'll, they'll turn to salvation for a few moments and share the good news of Christ, that you can sometimes see people check out. And, you know, it's, it's a message they've heard over and over again, and it becomes too routine to us. And it ought not. It does, but it ought not. And we have to focus on that because Paul says it's for you. It's safe. It's safe. It's good for you to get familiar, to know their message well. Because when the next time you come across an opportunity that God brings someone across your path who you can share Christ, you don't trip over your tongue. You don't wonder, what did I say? Or I forgot that verse. Or I wasn't listening very closely. Or whatever the case may be. It's the, one of the ways God prepares you and I to be witnesses in our personal private ministries. And so Paul said it's good for you to, be, to review, to hear this message over and over again. And then he begins with a warning, or next he turns to a warning in verse 2. Be, beware. He gives beware. And what he warns this, this church in Philippi about is those false teachers who have preached a false message. And we find in, in, in life, when people look around us, and some people want to be op open-minded, they want to be progressive in their thinking, and they want to think, you know, you're okay, I'm okay, everything's good as long as you're sincere. And that makes absolutely no sense. Because either it's one way or it's the other. And that's what, what the Bible always brings us to, the fact that the gospel message is a black and white message. G Jesus, G God says in his word that neither is there salvation in any other. For there's no other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. There's one message of salvation, and that's God's message. He's the authority, and it's to him we turn. We open his word, and we discover it. And Paul says there's a, the, the, you need to be warned about those who preach a false message. In this case, in the church of Philippi, as in many of the churches that Paul ministered to, the people he refers to here 
are called the circumcision. And those were Jews who refused to give up the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law, specifically circumcision. And they were preaching that you can go ahead and believe whatever you want, that's okay, but you cannot get to heaven apart from being circumcised. That was the trademark of the Jews. That was the cornerstone of their religion. They, they assumed, falsely assumed, that because they were circum physically circumcised, that they were children of God. And so they insisted on that. And that doctrine and those teachers dogged the heels of Paul wherever he went. And so he find these warnings and these references throughout his writings to the churches of his day to beware of these teachers. And Paul here is very politically correct in describing them, isn't he? That's supposed to be funny. You look at the passage, he wasn't. He, he, he calls them three things, and not, I don't think, mainly to be cynical. He says, beware of dogs, evil workers, and beware of the mutilation. And the first term, dogs, was a term that the, that the Jews used in addressing the Gentiles. Because a dog in the, in the day of the New Testament was not a cuddly family animal. It, it was a dirty animal, an unclean animal. It was a, it's a derog was a derogatory term to be called a dog. They didn't have visions of sweet puppy eyes and, and balls of fur. They were, they, were, they, were, they were animals of the street, scavengers. And they were considered unclean. And the reason the Gentile, Jews called Gentiles dogs is because they thought they were unclean because they were outside of the Jewish system, the Mosaic system. They were not ceremonially, ceremonially pure or clean as the Jews assumed they were simply because of some ceremonies. And so they called them unclean. They called them dogs. And here Paul, who was a Jew, who was a Pharisee, as we'll see in this passage, turned it around on them and said, in reality, they're the ones that are unclean because they are outside of Christ. That's the intention of this. It wasn't simply meant to be a derogatory term that he's going to slam them to the earth. He was describing where they really stood. Because the Jews assumed that because of their good work system, keeping the Ten Commandments and circumcision and all that went with it, that they were right with God, not realizing and re recognizing that it's faith alone that saves. Faith in another, and here in this passage, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in reality, they were the unclean ones because of their wrong message that they embraced, they were outside of salvation and the cleansing that comes through Christ. He then calls them evil workers. And it's interesting that God calls those that preach the false message evil workers. He calls false religion evil. That's what it says here. They're evil workers. You know, sometimes we think that any religion is an okay thing because they have some good qualities and some good traits and some good values. But that's not how God sees it. God sees anything that contradicts this, his message of salvation is filthy, unclean, and evil. Isaiah 64, 6 tells us this, but we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. You see, because false religion teaches that there is something in ourselves that we can do, that we can drum up in order to appease God, uh, uh, in order to please God, in order to gain our acceptance and the glory. But the Bible says our righteousnesses before God are filthy because they come from a sinner, an unclean sinner that, are, that, is, that is lost to God. And, and when the false teachers preach that it's not filthy, 
that there's a, maybe part of you is filthy, but some of you is, is clean. You know, if you just, you know, the old song, if you just fan the flames, that only takes a spark to get a fire going, has that mentality that there's good in all of us, and if you fan it, God's going to be impressed. Or God doesn't say that. God says we, says we all sin and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's not a just man upon the earth that does good and sins not because we're born as sinners before a holy God. And so it's evil. When a message opposes God's plan of salvation, which is, a, which is the plan of salvation by grace through faith alone given freely. Jesus said in Matthew 23 to the Pharisees, who were the ones who promoted, embraced, and claimed this message, the same, maybe the same group of people came from the Pharisees who Paul is addressing here. He says in Matthew 23, 13, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For, neither, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. And that's pretty black and white. These are, these are the religious leaders of the day. And he told, he told these religious leaders, he says, you're keeping people from heaven. You're not going in yourself. And because of the message you preach and teach, you're preventing others from going in. And that's why God calls it evil. Because you're really, through this religious good works message, sending people to hell. The third thing he calls them here is beware of the mutilators. That's a reference to the Judaizers. It was maybe a, a sarcastic term in regards to circumcision, those who mutilate the flesh. Some versions use the more politically correct term, you might say, false circumcision, but the term, if you look in the Greek, is mutilators. What it really implies is that is the spiritual damage that is done in promoting circumcision for salvation. He's not simply, once again, being, being simply mean or derogatory. What he is saying is that you are preventing people from going to heaven. Later in Matthew 23, Jesus speaks of this damaging effect of preaching circumcision as an addition to salvation, giving people a false sense of security. In verse 15 of Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. I think one version says a twofold child of hell. And what he's saying is when you go and preach the wrong message to someone so that they embrace it, you give them a false confidence. They think because some religious leader who appears pompous and authoritative gave them a pathway to heaven and, for, and they maybe for some reason like it, embrace it, and try to follow it, that they have a confidence that based on their works, here's circumcision, in our day it may be any works, fill in the blank, giving money, going to church, being good, being faithful. You give people a false confidence because their confidence is in themselves. And God says that's damaging. And what happens is you have a person who doesn't know they're lost. And that's why Jesus said to us, said that, you know, it's easier for the bum in the gutter, I'm paraphrasing here, the down and outers to go to heaven than it is for you religious guys. Why? Because the sinner knows he's a sinner. He needs rescuing. A religious person thinks, hey, they've got it under control. They don't have a need. And that's why uh, when you share the good news message, you have to share what the Bible says about man's condition. That all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. We're born sinners in Adam, separated from God. And salvation is not by works, lest any man should boast. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to God's mercy, he saved us. That's why they're evil workers. That's why Paul calls them the mutilators. And that's why Paul 
warns them. And these are God's perspectives. I'm not making this up. This is God's perspectives towards those teachings that contradict his word, the message of the gospel, those that pervert his message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, because in reality, it disrespects Jesus' death. Because it's Jesus that God puts before us. Jesus is the one who said it is finished. It's of Jesus that it says he was the satisfactory payment for our sin and for the sins of the whole world. Jesus was God's remedy for salvation. And so to add something to that or think we can add to that is really to stomp on his work and saying it wasn't sufficient, it wasn't enough. And that's why Galatians 2.16 says this, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. You know, if there's no other verse in the Bible about not by works, this would be enough. This is just like right to the point, and he hammers it home. We're not justified by, by good works. And in their days, it was the works of the law, referring to the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, and all that went with it. Instead, we're justified by faith in Christ. To be justified means to be declared right with God, made right with God. And it comes one way, through faith in the one who provided salvation completely and fully on the cross. And that's why we must remember that salvation is not a reward to be earned, but a gift to be received. That's why it's called a gift in the scriptures. It's not a reward. It's a gift provided wholly by God in his grace to undeserving mankind. You know, no one is going to stand before Jesus someday and say, I made it. That isn't going to happen. In fact, what we see in Philippians 2, we saw that in reality, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. We're not going to stand before him and say, and say, you know, Jesus, thank you for doing your part. I did my part. That isn't, that isn't the picture you see in heaven. You don't see that language in Scripture, do you? you you're not going to stand before him and say, I gave up something, and I remained faithful. I, I endured to the end. None of that. We're going to fall before him and praise him and thank you for the beauty and wonder of his matchless love and grace and give him all the glory. That's why Paul says in present life in Galatians 6.14, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's the only place I'm going to glory, in the cross of Christ, because it is there Jesus paid it all and removed what stood between me and God, my sin. That's the issue in salvation. It's the fact that we've sinned against a holy God and we need forgiveness. We need to be cleansed. And that happens through the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, Paul goes on to say then, in contrast to the, those described in verse 2, the false teachers, he says, For we are the circumcision, who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Now, when he says we are the circumcision, what he's referring to is spiritual circumcision, isn't he? He, he shifts the attention from the, the religion's focus on the external, and he begins to bring the focus to the heart. Now, to see that, in a, in a complimentary passage, let's go to Romans chapter 2. I want you to turn there, or at least listen along closely, because this is maybe made a little more clear here in Romans chapter 2. Here in Romans chapter 2, in this context, we find Paul describing three different classes of people. He describes the immoral man, the moral man, and the religious man. And as he talks to the Jews the religious person, representing the religious person, he says this to them in verse 28, end of the chapter, chapter 2. He says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, 
not, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. So he's saying true circumcision is not outward. But verse 29, he is a Jew, a, a real Jew, is one inwardly, whose circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, that is the letter of the law, not in good works, whose praise is not from men but God. And what he's saying here is the Pharisees had a lot of praise from men, recognition from men. They are all pompous and righteous. But the important thing is God sees the heart. And true cir circumcision is spiritual circumcision. It's circumcision of the heart. It's exactly what he's saying too. It is that which sets us apart to God. And that's what he's saying back in chap Philippians chapter 3. He's saying we are the circumcision. I think some versions say we are the true circumcision. They insert the word true to help us to get the, the, the contrast of the meaning here. Paul says, we, the apostles who are carrying God's message, are the true circumcision because we worship God in the spirit. He brings attention to spiritual circumcision, that which sets us apart to God. So circumcision of the heart involves the Holy Spirit. And then he says, we rejoice in Christ Jesus. The centerpiece of our worship is and joy is Jesus Christ. He says, and we also then have no confidence in the flesh. That is no confidence in our good works, in our faith, in our faithfulness. You see, the Holy Spirit is the one who seals us in our salvation. He is the one who places us into Christ. The Bible, 1 Corinthians 12 says we're placed into one body in Christ. The Spirit of God, which comes into the heart and life of each child of God, sort of brands us. In a sense, he's, he's our spiritual branding brand that identifies us as Christian ones. He unites us with, into Christ with other believers who are in Christ, those who are saved. And then he begins to sanctify us to Christ-likeness. So spiritual circumcision involves the Holy Spirit, and it's centered on Jesus Christ, he says. We, we, we worship Jesus Christ. That's where our worship is. We rejoice in him. You see, it's through Jesus Christ that we are set apart to God, that we are made right to God, that we are sanctified to God or spiritually circumcised to God. That's what he's saying here. It's Jesus Christ as a centerpiece. You see, in the Old Testament law, self is the centerpiece of my salvation. My, my faith and faithfulness, my, my good works, keeping the Ten Commandments, being circumcised, and going through all the rites and rituals of the Judaistic religion. Well, God's included, but it's focused on self. Or here, what Paul is saying, I'm focused on Jesus Christ. I'm rejoicing in him because it's through Jesus Christ that we are forgiven because he paid it all. He took our debt on the cross. It's through Jesus Christ we're cleansed. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin, the filth of sin. And it's through Jesus Christ we're clothed in his righteousness. We stand accepted in him. We're going to get to that. That's the point of this passage here, if we ever get there today. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, But of him you are in Christ Jesus. These are speaking to Christians, believers. Of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The result then, what Paul says in verse 3, is I have no confidence in the flesh. Now Paul was a religious guy, top drawer religious guy. We're gonna, that's, that's where he turns to next. But he says, because of this, I've turned from faith in self to faith in Jesus Christ. I have absolutely no confidence in my good works. I said my confidence is in Christ. You see, we have no way to improve on God's means of reconciling men and women to himself. There's no way we can improve to it, add to it in any way, shape, or form. Jesus paid it all. Paul said, I have no confidence in any aspect of my, my flesh. 
Titus 3, 5, 5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's God's plan of salvation, not through our efforts, our contributions. It's through faith alone in Christ. And so true circumcision is inward, isn't it? It involves salvation, it involves being cleansed and forgiven. It is accomplished through faith in Christ. That is the way a person is made right with God, becomes a child of God, and becomes secure in him. It also involves then growth. Once we're saved, we begin to grow into Christ-likeness. And so we do begin to change. Fruit may begin to exhibit itself, but that comes after we're born into God's family that we can begin acting like God's children. And the Spirit of God makes that real in our lives. Well, Paul then, now then verse 4, as we move on, he says, I'm going to give myself as an example of no confidence in the flesh. And what he says here, he says, you know, if you want to talk about good works, you're not going to outdo me. It's what he, that's what he says here in the flesh. He says in verse, he says in verse 4, if anyone, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, and is referring to his pre-salvation condition. Though I, if anyone's have confidence in the flesh, I could have confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has, may have confidence in the flesh, I more. He says, you're not going to outdo my religious efforts before I was saved. And he goes on to give his credentials. He was circumcised the eighth day, stock of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, on and on he goes. He says, I was top drawer in the Judaistic religion. He was a Pharisee. He was a leader. He was as good as you possibly could be. And then he, he, and then he also was zealous. He, didn't just, he just didn't go to the temple. He just didn't study the law. He was out there persecuting Christians. He persecuted the church. He was, he was out, out there hitting the, hitting the pavement for his religion. And concerning righteousness, goodness, he said concerning the law, I was blameless. I kept it to the T. He says, you aren't going to get any, any more religious than I was. A lot of people today have pride in their religious experience. I remember going door to door for a vacation Bible school one year up in a town in northern Minnesota and um, knocked on the door of a house and I think we'd seen a swing set and assumed there was kids in the house and it was just a grandma who had a swing set. And, but she had no need, but she said, to be sure, you know, you stop at that blue house down the second house in the next block. Be sure you, they really need it, she said. She had no need. And that's, what, and that's the problem with religion. We don't have a need. We think we've got her under control. We've got her covered. So what does Paul say about that, about his experience in verse 7? He says, what things were gained to me, which he just listed, I've counted loss for Christ. He counted all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Paul says, I really considered my good works as a loss. Because he recognized all those years he had a false confidence. And he, he, and, he, and he trashed them. He no longer claimed them. Though they were part of his experience, there was part of his background, he gave up on his good works e efforts and saw them as pre preventing him from knowing Christ and obtaining forgiveness. And instead, he traded him in for, I've counted all things for loss for Christ. He traded him in for salvation through faith in Christ. In fact, verse 8 expands, verse 7, when he says, I count all things but loss. 
any, any thought of my contribution to salvation, anything that I thought was gain in regards to my spiritual attaining of heaven, I count but loss. Instead, I have the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. That was better. Yeah, count up a loss. I gave up on it. Instead, he, he trusted Christ as his Savior, and he says, I've suffered the loss of all things. And not, Paul's not saying he became a pauper. He's not talking about giving up his, his portfolio and, all the, and joining a monastery. He's not talking about that. He's talking about what was gained to him. What was gained to him was his religious pride and his religious works. And that's what he gave up. And recognize that he was a sinner who needed salvation. And instead he came to the excellent knowledge that Jesus Christ is the one who created him, who redeemed him, who died for him, who saved him. And he says uh, he counts those things as rubbish. Interesting term, isn't it? Other versions use the word dung, filth, rubbish. Interesting. That's how he viewed what others would have, would have highly commended him for in his religious accomplishments, his religious zeal. He said, it's rubbish. It's worthless is what he's saying it's, it, it, before God. And that's where he gets to the root of it all. Because he recognized that his righteousness were his filthy rags. They contributed to his religious pride but they didn't contribute to, his, to the cleansing of his soul. In Hebrews chapter 9, we find the idea that the Old Testament law could never clean the conscience. But when Jesus Christ came, and I am paraphrasing greatly here, but when Jesus Christ came, you can read it for yourself, his final death on the cross that took care of sin once and for all and forever and ever and ever and ever, can clean the conscience of guilt from sin because the penalty had been finally paid once and for all. Jesus offered one sacrifice for sins forever. And that's why Paul later wrote uh, Romans chapter 7, verse 18, For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. Nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. I want to do what's right, but how to perform what is good I don't find. Then Romans 8, verse 8 says, So that they, they, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul recognized that in our, our flesh before God, we cannot please God. And it's not that God says that we're worthless scum of the earth. We have value to God. He created us. God so loved the world that he sent Jesus to die for us. But our works have no worth to God. That's what the Bible teaches us. God had his plan. And that's why... In the Bible, God contrasts man's wisdom with his wisdom because in his wisdom, he knew that our good works could never cleanse the conscience of guilt, could never cleanse the sinner of his sin, could never fit him for an eternity with a holy God. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 3. We are in Romans earlier where Paul talks about we saw that circumcision is of the heart. But in Romans chapter 3, he comes to a conclusion of the three classes of people, the immoral man, the moral man, the religious man. In verse 9, he says this, of Romans 3, What then are we, he's including himself as a Pharisee, better than they? 
the, uh, the, other, the rest of the Gentiles. Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. That's the conclusion Paul came to. We're all under the curse of sin, the, the condemnation of sin, the grip of sin. There is none righteous, as it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. No exceptions. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Again, there is some emphasis there. It's crystal clear, isn't it? And that's why Paul says his good works were as rubbish. They were worthless. All these years he thought it was his efforts that was going to appease a holy God. And then he found Christ. You see, we find in the scriptures that any form of self-contribution to the message of salvation is rubbish. Because grace alone saves. Working for it or working on it to keep it holy is, is inadequate before God. It comes short. The only requirement in here in Philippians 3 is to gain Christ. That is to claim, to appropriate Jesus' death as adequate and that gift is free. And that's what he addresses in verse 9. As you go back to Philippians 3. And then verse 8, he says, I, I count these things but rubbish so that I might gain Christ. I used to gain, I think it was gain to be this top drawer religious zealot. But now I think it's gain to, to have found Christ. And to be found in him, verse 9. I love that phrase, be found in him. What Paul is saying, I'm not found in self in my best efforts, my faith or my faithfulness, I'm found in Him. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, that's where my faith used to be, but that which is through faith in Christ, that's where my faith is now. The righteousness which is from God by faith. And that's the critical issue facing humanity. Where do we stand? Are we found in self? Are we found in Him? Are we standing in the righteousness of Christ? You see, when we trust Christ as Savior, we know that we're forgiven. In Him is the forgiveness of sins. We know that we're cleansed from the filth of sin, but we're also clothed with His righteousness because we are seen as being in Him. It's a standing we have as Christians. Ephesians talks a lot about what it means to be in Christ. And when you're right-related to God through faith in Jesus' death for you on the cross, you become a Christian, God unites us with Christ in such a way as He describes that relationship as being in Christ. We are in Him. We're found in Him. We stand in Him. And that's why Ephesians 1.6 says that we are accepted in the Beloved One. That's our acceptance. It's not based upon our righteousness, which is from good works of the law, but it's because we are accepted in Him. We stand in His righteousness. And that's what Paul says in verse 9. I want to be found in Him, not depending on my righteousness, which is from good works, but that which is through faith in Christ. That's simple, isn't it? Don't you love the simplicity of that? That which is, from, is through faith in Christ, that, the right, that, that righteousness which is from God by faith. So it's a righteousness from God, not a righteousness we produce from ourselves through faith and faithfulness. It's a righteousness which comes to God, which clothes us, which fits us for heaven. The big word for that, the theologians use the word imputation. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he, Christ, was made sin for us and knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The, the word impute means God places to our account. We find that term in Romans chapter 4. God credits us with the righteousness of Christ. God has made him, Jesus, to be sin for us. That's the cross. 
That's what we celebrate in our Lord's table today. He was made sin. It's an amazing thing when I think about the fact that it was my sin that put him on the cross. I don't know how that transpired, but the Bible tells us that God laid on him the iniquity of us all. He made him to be sin for us. Who knew no sin? He didn't have any sins of his own to pay for that we might become, that we might have the righteousness of God. We're given the righteousness of God in him. And so the only way we enter into the place of acceptance before God is by faith. And Paul, once again, here makes it clear that salvation is gained apart from any human effort, and that's because faith is non-meritorious. Because, because faith itself is absolutely nothing apart from an object. And I mention that because there's people today who say, well, I have faith. And you might ask them, what is your faith in? Because faith requires an object. To believe, you must believe in something. And when people say, well, I just have faith, really what they're saying is they have faith in chance, in circumstance, or in themselves. Because when you just say, I have faith, you put the emphasis on the, the one expressing the faith, which turns a person inward. Uh oh, there we go again, down that path of confidence in the flesh. But the Bible always associates faith, uses the word faith, I should say, with the word in or on. Because the value is in its object. We have faith in Christ. We believe on Christ. That's where faith la lands itself, and that's where the value is, because having faith apart from an object is absolutely worthless and meaningless. Instead, we place our faith in Christ, and that's where assurance comes from in our lives, does it not? Assurance never comes from looking inward. It comes from looking upward. And though there may be times in our lives that, that fruit in our lives brings some joy because we see God's at work. He's changing me. His word is becoming real in my life. It might bring us some reassurance of my relationship with God, but absolute assurance of salvation comes from one place. It's from the power and promise of God based upon the cross of Christ. That's where assurance comes from. And when we have doubt, when our assurance has been shaken, it's because we're looking in the wrong place. Because we still fail as Christians. The Bible describes a Christian who sins as carnal and fleshly and worldly. And we do fail and sin. We have the ca that capacity. And we'll have it all our lives. And the Bible knows no limit to that. In fact, there's, if there's a limit on our carnality, it's called the sin unto death, which is a whole other subject. Maybe a subject will open up. If you have a question, we'll talk about it later. But when we look upward, we look to the promise of God, we find that he, Jesus offered one sacrifice for sins forever. That Jesus paid it all. And that God promises based on that, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. And so we find our assurance and our security rooted in the complete payment of Christ for our sin on the cross coupled with the promise of God. And that's what Paul's saying here. That's where I want to be found. Not in any contribution of my own to salvation. I want to be found in him. In him alone. That's where I stand. Because my righteousness, and he was as good as it gets, was worthless before God. But in Christ, I'm made righteous. I'm accepted in him. Because I've come to him by faith. And so the question before us today is where, do we, where are we found today? Where's our confidence today? Romans 5.2 says this. Through whom? We, we also, that is through Christ. The previous verse said, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You see, there's no assurance. There is no eternal joy in rejoicing if there's any chance that I, my, my contribution wasn't enough. But when we, when we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, when we stand in the unconditional grace of God, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rest in absolute assurance. That's why we rejoice. That's what we celebrate today. And that's why this, the Lord's table is, in one hand, a sad story, a tragedy, isn't it? The God of the universe was rejected by men and hung on a cross, capital punishment, to die. And on top of that, God the Father laid on him the iniquity of us all. And yet he, rose, he, yet he died, buried, and, was ro and rose again. The victorious Savior. And so it's, a, so it's a time of rejoicing because God used that death as the means by which he would forgive the world. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand. And that's the, I that's the issue between us and God. Where do we stand this morning? Do we stand in the cross, in the work of the cross, the promise of God, in the work of Christ, or do we stand in our own righteousness? The one God calls filthy, worthless, rubbish. The other is glorious because God himself who receives the glory provided salvation full of free apart from any effort on our own. What a wonderful salvation we have. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our Savior, Father. And now as we turn to the Lord's table, Father, we want to rejoice in him today. You tell us that when we partake of the elements, Father, that we proclaim him. And we proclaim him because we identify with him as the one Jesus died for. And Father, that's why the celebration is for Christians, for those who know Christ, those who can, who can say Jesus died for me and provided for me that, that assurance that you give because you promise to give eternal life. Thank you, Father, for the work of Christ on the cross. And Father, may the lessons we learn today from this chapter not only reassure us of our acceptance and standing in Christ, but may it embolden us to share such a wonderful message of a full and free salvation that you provided for the world. So direct our hearts to the Lord Jesus, now we pray in Jesus' name.